This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is California 21st District Representative David Valadeo. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with California Congressman David Valadeo next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 480 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. California farmers face a number of legislative and regulatory issues from their own state government as well as from Washington. But 21st District Representative David Valadeo says a drought of historic proportions is proving devastating for farmers and consumers alike. We've obviously dealt with drought for generations, but water policies have just made it even worse. And so what it's doing for people today, I mean, obviously farmers are struggling. Even just this past week driving around the district, uh, you already see wells out of the ground being worked on, some new ones being drilled, people preparing for the summer. But uh, but you're actually seeing where uh, water has gotten so expensive, energy prices have gotten so expensive uh, to be able to pump water that it just makes a lot of commodities un, uh, un, not profitable. Uh, but it also hurts us on the community side too. So farm workers... Farmers, businesses all rely on water in their communities as well. So uh, some of my uh, rural towns that are trying to build some more housing um, can't afford to do it or, or don't have the ability to do it because they have no water supply for those homes. And so it's raising prices on, on homes in the area as well. I mean, it's, it's having an impact across uh, the district. I've had certain small farm towns even run out of water where they've had to bring in tanks uh, and truck in water so they can keep the water system pressurized for the homes in those small communities. Is this a state issue? Is this a federal issue? How much of either? It's both, um, but as of as, as of this very moment, it's mostly state. I mean, uh, the the different uh, water systems. There's a state one and a federal one, and then there's a lot of local ones as well. But um, a lot of the biggest decisions and funding comes from the feds, but now as dry as it's gotten, the water quality standards that are trying to be protected fall on the state, and, and state rules are making it more difficult in, uh, in their efforts to try to, what they say is protecting uh, water quality in the Delta. Is there any way to get your arms around the amount of fallowed land or of how this is affecting the production of California? Well, rules are still being uh, implemented, but SIGMA, uh, the one, that, the new legislation that was signed uh, a few years back that's going to restrict a lot of pumping and uh, a lot of water, we're expecting this to, to have an impact of, uh, I mean, as much as probably a million acres uh, across California. I mean, it's, it's something that can have a devastating impact on, uh, on agriculture in California. Is Washington doing all it can, and is California an example of other areas of the country that may be facing uh, a similar situation, although perhaps not as extreme yet? So, no, Cal- uh, 
Washington could do more. Uh, we've introduced legislation, even simple ones that were just uh, reauthorizing old uh, language that was done in 2016 under the Obama administration that was uh, that was bipartisan. That would allow for a little more flexibility in the way we operate those pumps in the central part of California. Um, but Washington can do more. But the state of California, I think this should be an example for the rest of the country to watch, where extremist uh, environmentalist groups come out and uh, basically take control of the operations and of the laws that affect the way that we manage water, and it's put the whole state in jeopardy. And if other states follow suit, they could end up in the same type of situation that we're in today. How is the ag labor shortage affecting agriculture in California, and is it limiting productivity or perhaps the diversity of crops at once were raised in your state? Ag labor has been an issue for uh, decades for us. Uh, obviously, it's something that is important. With a district like mine in the Central Valley, we grow three to 400 different types of commodities, a lot of specialty crops, and a lot of them are very labor-intensive, from pruning to harvesting to everything else that is required around those types of products that are raised. So it's always a problem. Are we finding ways to, to bring in more automation? Yes. I mean, obviously, if you take, like, blueberries, for example, which is grown in many states, it used to be where people were very focused on picking specific blueberries that are ripe. Now they just take into account that there's going to be a loss, and they're harvesting mechanically, and it's not as precise. And then they'll, think, they'll worry about getting the, the, uh, the berries that aren't ready for market out at the processing plant. Um, but, yes, there was a point in time where even citrus, uh, instead of going to the top of every tree, uh, they were focused on the, the easier to reach, quicker fruit in the middle of the tree and, and move on to the next tree because they didn't have enough labor to go after all the commodities. So, so you're actually losing a percentage of the crop there. So yeah, labor's been something that's impacted us for a long time. Do you see any possibility for consensus in any time soon? And how much of it is perhaps even riding on the results of the midterm election? bill that's moved out of the House was one that was negotiated uh, in the previous Congress, and it moved quickly. It's the Farm Worker Modernization Act, which obviously is not a perfect piece of legislation, but uh, it is sitting in the Senate. Uh, for that bill to become law, it would have to be moved out of the Senate before the new Congress takes over at the beginning of next year. But uh, we're hearing rumor that senators are starting to have conversations, starting having a di- uh, some dialogue on their own version or some fixes to that bill. Uh, which we would obviously welcome, um, and I think it would be great to have that conversation. Obviously, what's going on down at the border, all the news about uh, the situation there has made the politics around anything that uh, affects immigration or guest worker programs uh, a little more complicated. And so we've been working with at least letting the administration know that their inaction and their failures on the border are actually making some solutions difficult to get to. So let's move to another topic. What did you learn from your supply chain roundtable recently? Well, it was uh, it was an opportunity to talk about different situations that we're dealing with. Obviously, the uh, Ocean Shipping and Reform Act that we have, uh, who has passed out of the House, and just in the last uh, day or so, um, we actually the Senate moved their version. And so, trying to get an idea from from that uh, roundtable was. Where, were, where was the industry at? What did they want to see more? Uh, uh, from what we got from that was that they were more interested in the House version. They felt our House version was a little bit stronger language. Uh, and so when we go to conference now with the Senate version, uh, hopefully we're, we can take those points and, and make sure that we hammer on that so that uh, we get the strongest, uh, most ag-friendly uh, bill 
to law, which is obviously what's the most important for all of us. So let's dig a little deeper there. What are the things that are in the House piece of legislation that you feel like need to stand, especially to gain the majority in that chamber? Well, I mean, we need to make sure that we're prohibiting uh, carriers from declining opportunities to export our products. I mean, we have to make sure that we're as strong on that language as possible. And, and a lot of these carriers are not uh, American flag vessels, so it is complicated. Uh, but making sure that uh, that we're not uh, that we're penalizing the operators, especially the ocean uh, shipping containers, as much as we possibly can for uh, for delaying or playing any sort of game they possibly can. Because what ends up happening is, is these ocean carriers uh, get paid to get to get parked, and then what it does is the remaining carriers that are actually moving about are able to charge more because there's only a limited number of carriers. So it's almost They've, they've seen some of the most profitable years uh, they've seen in a long time, and it's for all the wrong reasons. It's not because they're moving more product, but it's because they're playing games with the system in place. And so we feel like the House version has stronger provisions to make sure things like that stop. So one of the issues talking inside agriculture is that some of our foreign customers understand there's a situation, but they still need product. So how much longer do you go before you don't just lose a short-term sale but you start to lose a long-term customer and global market share. Well, and that's that's the biggest concern there. And one of the things they talked about at that roundtable was the fact that there were uh, customers that some of our ad companies lost uh, decades ago and still have never gained back from previous fights. So we need to make sure that we lose as few of those as possible because once we lose a customer, it's a lot harder to get them back. And we have to make sure that happens as little as possible. It's, it's a big issue that we are watching carefully, and, and hopefully the Senate will come to the table as quickly as possible so we can get a bill done. You said on the House Appropriations Committee, and I would suggest uh, that this FY22, we're obviously operating generally under a CR. So what do you see as the, as the way forward as we start to concentrate on fiscal year 23? So just in the last few weeks, we actually passed an appropriations bill and, and became law, so we're no longer operating under a CR. So that changed up a little bit. We're under the new appropriations bills, so there were some changes made there. Uh, now we're starting. President Biden just introduced his budget uh, on March 28th, which was Monday, and we're starting the appropriations process for fiscal year 23. I personally think it's going to be tough to see any sort of funding bills, new types of bills passed, for fiscal year 23 before election day. I, I just, the politics around that, uh, with the slim majority that the Democrats have, I think they're gonna, we might end up seeing some CRs and short-term CRs at the end of the year just because, uh, it's too close to election day and, and, and the politics around that is always difficult. Well, I realize that, that we did sign that, that piece of legislation to, to finish spending for the rest of the year. But still, Congressman, in terms of general order, we're miles away from that, from what you would normally expect to three, see through subcommittee committee uh, on both sides uh, of the Capitol and finally to a spending piece of legislation. Are we giving the, the, the nation's budget and appropriation process the attention it deserves, or is it being lost in partisanship? So I see what your point is there. Yes, uh, that is something regular order is something that all of us appropriators fight for on a regular basis. The House did earlier last year through the summer move all of pretty much all of our appropriations bills out of committee. Uh, a lot of them moved off the House floor. The Senate did absolutely nothing. And so we negotiated off of uh, some of the appropriations bills uh, that uh, we had done. But 
the real process that Congress should do is pass those 12 individual appropriations bills, one by one, subcommittee by subcommittee, debate them as individual bills, and move them to the, uh, to the president's desk and have them sign into law the way they're supposed to be instead of creating these omnibus packages that people really don't uh, feel comfortable with. There was a 2,700-page bill. Um, even though a lot of us have been seeing the, that language for a while, it still comes across as a little bit of a surprise to the average voter, and it, it creates a lot of frustration for people. So with the process that we have now, where does this leave agriculture talking about FY23 and knowing that we're looking at a new farm bill? Agriculture has already started working pretty hard uh, just in the last few weeks, uh, meeting with different industry groups, uh, and they've been reaching out to the offices. We've got, uh, just in my office, for example, on our website, uh, we've got our approach request forms up and ready to go so that uh, if there's language in the appropriations bills that uh, farm Farm groups are trying to protect. They should be reaching out to their ag appropriators and their members of Congress in general to make sure that we're putting in the requests uh, to the Appropriations Committee uh, to protect the, the things that those farmers and those industries think are important to them. The process has started. We're, we're ready. We're starting those meetings, uh, but it is a, it is a long process. Uh, now, Farm Bill, uh, the the ranking member, G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania, has already been traveling the country meeting with different farm groups. They're preparing on the Ag Committee to start their process for the farm bill. And as you well know, uh, it's a complicated, long bill, and we have to make sure that agriculture is heard uh, all the way through the process and not wait till the last minute for, for those important uh, different topics that, uh, that they're going to be fighting for. Could you pull out the Valadeo crystal ball and, and give me a response here? Uh, will the USDA budget stay flatlined without any additional dollars from something like Build Back Better or Growing Climate Solutions or something similar? Personally, I don't see uh, it growing with any of those right now. Um, I know that there are a lot of different programs out there for conservation and others where there is bipartisan support where I can see some of those programs uh, maybe expanded or given more opportunities because, I mean, technology is changing across the country and people are getting more uh, involved in doing things a little bit different, a little bit better, uh, more efficient, and sometimes uh, some of those USDA programs are helpful to a lot of farmers. I can see some of those potentially having some more resources, but as far as coming back from Build Back Better or some of the, the really extreme legislation, no, I, I just don't see that happening right now. What changes do you think are needed in dairy policy and dairy income protection? And that's the thing that's interesting for when you, because you're a nationwide program. In California, a lot of these crop insurance programs are, were, were not used as widely as uh, they were in a lot of the Midwest region. But we're starting to see a lot more. Uh, and when it comes to uh, the way that we are able to hedge or protect our milk price, I feel like at least around the dairymen I talk to, there are more and more uh, getting active on that and asking a lot of questions and signing up for it. And you're seeing a lot of these crop insurance companies hire guys that are uh, specific to the dairy industry to help get more dairymen involved in the process. So we're seeing some growth. But on a program like that where it wasn't something that many farmers used or were familiar with and you're hedging and you're having to pay that premium, there was obviously going to be some that were going to come to a little bit slower. Uh, those who probably traded a little bit or hedged a little bit or uh, would play with the puts and calls or were actually uh, selling uh, some futures, I mean, they probably were a little more uh, apt to trying it earlier. But you are I feel like we are seeing some increase, and I, I feel like a lot of dairy farmers do like it. Uh, but there's, 
One of the things that affected us in California that was uh, done in 2018 that was actually part of the 13 Farm Bill was allow California to join the federal order, and that was something that changed the world for us, and, and it actually saw an improvement in the level of the playing field with California versus the rest of the country, and instead of us being the lowest-priced milk in the country, or, or at least one of the bottom two. So let's stay with the dairy industry and follow this. Uh, Canada's not living up to the promises that were made uh, for dairy access under USMCA. What's the way forward? Well, they're fighting it out right now, and that's one of the issues that a lot of us uh, had problems with all along. The Canadian dairy system really does have a lot of power in, in their government, and they've been very strong. They were one of the holdouts during the whole negotiation. It was something a lot of us were very adamant about, and it's going to be a fight that's going to continue, but we have to set some precedent that in the beginning to make sure that this doesn't continue on for the long haul. Overall, I think that the renegotiation was a good deal for, for agriculture, but the dairy one was just always going to be a problem. None of us are surprised by it. We're just probably a little surprised that it's taken so long. Some might suggest that your state is a melting pot for environmental, animal rights issues, and for that matter, even energy. So let's bring up the topic of Proposition 12, where a ballot initiative in essence becomes uh, the standard for the nation's pork producers or anyone that wants to sell pork inside the borders of your state. Uh, is this right to be before the Supreme Court? Do you see a challenge uh, that is viable with regard to the Commerce Clause? So, yes, I, I think it's right for the Supreme Court to get involved and, and make a decision. It's going to be a complicated one. Obviously, uh, uh, when we went through the poultry front, uh, poultry went through this a number of years ago, and there was a lot of uh, movement in trying to pass legislation on the House, and there was a lot of fights that I was involved in. Uh, but we had a lot of these poultry guys that made huge investments, met the, the California standard. And so from a California perspective, at least on the farmer front, those investments were made, and we were doing everything we could to try to protect uh, our farmers within our borders uh, so that they weren't being undercut by farmers outside. And I know it's a divisive topic, but uh, it's it's something that uh, once it's law and once we're uh, living by those rules and trying to survive by those rules within our state, when we see uh, someone who can sidestep the rules, undercut our market, it, it obviously creates a little bit of controversy within the, at the agriculture world. Um, but to continue to have this fight isn't productive as well. So uh, if, if the Supreme Court makes an ultimate decision, is able to solve this once and for all, uh, hopefully it'll uh, give us some real direction and, and some security in our decisions when we move forward. Do you see more things like this developing in time? I do. Uh, California is 40 million people, and obviously some of the larger cities create a lot of problems uh, with uh, their lack of understanding of the ag world, uh, but they're a huge voting base, and it, it just it's so hard to get anything done that's, that's pro-common sense in the state of California because of uh, some of these extremists, and uh, and it, it's frustrating. Um, but it just puts all of our farmers and our ag communities in the middle. And so as a guy that represents a large ag district, I've got to do the best for the people that I represent and give them the best opportunity as possible to, to survive, help continue to try to feed the American people, and, and create those jobs that we desperately need. You have constituents that raise organic crops and those that raise conventional crops, and Sometimes those are the same person. Do you see a challenge with regard to organic standards, the definition of organically produced crops or dairy products or others, a tussle between the USDA and the FDA? 
I've got farmer friends of mine that do both, and, uh, and converting one huge farm into one huge organic farm, uh, or even if it's a small one, is an expensive ordeal. And so for people to do it, they usually transition slowly, uh, unless you're in the dairy world where it's not like you can convert one corral. You've got to do the whole dairy farm. When you're making those types of decisions, you have to have some sort of standard uh, to allow. And, and obviously the consumer has that choice, and it's a market that uh, seems to be growing and doing well. If farmers want to make those decisions, I think they should be protected in a way that allows them to be able to produce that and, and not have uh, basically a way to sidestep it and undercut that market because it's an investment, it's a consumer base. And if you have these deceiving labels out there, and we see this on so many different fronts, and it's always been a big fight for us in the dairy world with even just standards of identity. If you have something that's labeled organic or if it's something that's labeled cheddar, the consumer has to have faith in that product to be what it says it is or else they start to lose faith in all the products. And so, well, if this, this label lied to me, am I going to trust the next one? Am I, and, and I think the federal government does have a role to, be, to play there to make sure that when things are being labeled, that there is some faith in that, there is some trust in that, and that we're verifying that. But we also have to make it as easy as possible for farmers to be able to abide by those rules and be able to have access to those markets and, and be successful. Congressman, how would you define the president's energy strategy? Uh, currently, I'd say it's a disaster. I obviously represent a lot of oil producing California as well. Kern County is a very large oil producing region, and so is Fresno and Kings. It's been a frustration for a lot of us. I still remember paying 99 cents for a gallon of farm diesel in California, which I know you probably have a lot of listeners that remember a lot less than that. Uh, but getting a price just in the last few weeks from our, uh, our diesel distributor uh, for a truckload, he was talking over $5 a gallon. Saying so the price of fuel is way too high, and, and this is not good for our economy, it's not good for our people, and obviously it's going to have a huge impact on our farmers because we need this to be able to drive those tractors that do the work that we need them to do. It would seem that we would raise an eyebrow to the point of the fact that we could produce more oil here in the U.S., but instead that's been restricted, and instead now we're purchasing from foreign customers and we're releasing oil from the strategic reserve. Well, and the, and the other thing is I met with some of my oil guys in California, and this, the number they told me was that there was about 2,000 oil rigs parked right now. So even if the federal government and the state government, because the state government plays a huge role in this, and Governor Newsom does not get a free pass on this one. He's been holding up permits himself. So uh, I think they should both be held accountable on this front. If they were to both step out of the way and say, all right, guys, start drilling, to get the crews, and obviously we've got labor issues, not just in agriculture, but all the way through our, our total entire economy. So if they were to try to fire up those 2,000 oil drillers and put people on them, get them trained, get them started up, it would take a year. And so every day that we waste, it's not like they just turn on a spigot. I mean, they literally have to get people trained up, on the job, started, and going. And it's going to be a process, and so that's the scariest part about this whole conversation. Congressman, we want to thank you for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and today, sir, you've got the last word. Well, I just want to say thank you, uh, and for all the farmers out there, uh, you've got to reach out to your members of Congress. Make sure that they have an understanding, even if, if it's one that you disagree with politically, uh, making sure that your voice is heard, that they have an understanding of what how important agriculture is and how important it is that uh, you're able to continue to do what you do to feed the, uh, the country. Um, make sure that they're hearing from you. Make sure that you're, you're being heard and that, uh, that your opinions are shared and, and we're able to bring as many good ideas to Washington as possible because we, we need some good ideas back here. Our thanks to California 21st District Representative David Valadeo. 
our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.